Everything about this passage is sad. We see, first of all, the wastefulness of idolatry. These gold items were the very items required for the building of the tabernacle. Riches they received in their redemption from the hands of the Egyptians. Remember that? But now here we see these items given over to dead and useless idols. And of course, we see the pathetic weakness of Aaron. And and there's no sugarcoating it. D.A. Carson says bluntly here, Aaron is revealed as a spineless wimp, unable or unwilling to impose any discipline. Closed quote. Aaron's like Eli, a good man, perhaps, in and of himself, but utterly incapable of restraining those he loves. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Everything about this passage is sad. That isn't much of an introduction, and it makes me wonder whether we should even be reading this passage today on the radio or not. But as we're going to hear, the Bible is not the story of good guys and bad guys. The Bible is a story of bad guys, bad people, who need Jesus. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 32. This is certainly one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible, and also one of the most honest. It is somewhat shocking that this chapter is even in the Bible. We're shocked by all the stories of horrific failure and tragic shortcoming that are recorded in the pages of Scripture. This story belongs right up there with the story of David's adultery and Peter's betrayal, not to mention Moses' murder, which we've already encountered. As has been said many times before, the Bible is not a story about good guys and bad guys. It is a story about bad guys who need Jesus. And we see that again in this chapter. Structurally, it functions as something of an interlude between the section of the text providing instructions on the building of the tabernacle and its various accoutrements and the account of the actual construction of the tabernacle and its accoutrements. In between the instructions and the implementation... There is this story of breathtaking idolatry, followed by a most remarkable and gracious renewal. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, we have to remember, I suppose, that from the perspective of the people on the ground, this is the next event in the timeline that began back in Exodus 24, verse 18. Exodus 24, 18 says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So, The people on the ground saw that, but they didn't see or hear anything else that we've been reading about since that time. They've been staring at a mountain that appears to have eaten their leader, Moses. And keep in mind, they didn't even really know Moses that well. We're only months into the story of Moses' leadership over the people of Israel. He came out of the desert, claimed to have had contact with God, was used by God along with Aaron to effect a great redemption. But now, to their eyes, it did appear that perhaps God had taken him back. 
and it was now up to the people on the ground to find a way forward. That was the argument on the ground, and to understand it is by no means to excuse it. Despite not having seen Moses now for 40 days, they had seen the power of God clearly manifested over Pharaoh and over nature itself. That alone ought to have fortified them during this temporary delay, but it did not. And so they sought out a new mediator, Aaron, and by extension, these idols that they asked Aaron to make. Now, it is helpful here for us to understand how idols functioned in the ancient world. It isn't so much that the people thought that Aaron would make actual gods for them. It is rather that, as had been their custom in Egypt, they intended now to reach out to the gods, and likely still to Yahweh himself, through the mediation of these carved images. That's how worship happened in the ancient world. You prayed not so much to the idol, but to the God behind the idol. The idol was to be the meeting place, as it were, the place where prayers went up and guidance and blessing came down. By the way, understanding that will help you understand why in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the place where we meet with God. Jesus is where prayers go up and blessings come down. And that is why the second commandment forbids the making of images, because an image is coming, God says, and you must wait for him. By the way, the word image used in Colossians 1.15 is the Greek word icon. The word is usually translated idol when the context is negative. An idol is just the wrong icon, as it were. And according to the New Testament, Jesus is the right icon. He is the image of the invisible God. Make your prayers to him. But we have to be careful not to get too far ahead of ourselves here. The people want a new form of mediation. That's the point. Who knows what happened to Moses? So they want to go back to the form of mediation they were familiar with from their time in Egypt. And Aaron, tragically, is perfectly willing to comply. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Everything about this passage is sad. We see, first of all, the wastefulness of idolatry. These gold items were the very items required for the building of the tabernacle, riches they received in their redemption from the hands of the Egyptians. Remember that? But now here we see these items given over to dead and useless idols. And of course, we see the pathetic weakness of Aaron. And, and there's no sugarcoating it. D.A. Carson says bluntly here, Aaron is revealed as a spineless wimp, unable or unwilling to impose any discipline. Closed quote. Aaron's like Eli, a good man, perhaps, in and of himself, 
but utterly incapable of restraining those he loves. The best we can say about Aaron here is that he does seem to engage in a bit of damage control. He attempts to keep the focus on Yahweh. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. He says that these idols will represent the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this idolatrous telephone, as it were, is connected to the one true God. Okay, we see what you're trying to do there. And then he built an altar before the idol. So he is mixing approved elements with idolatrous elements. So perhaps he thinks that syncretism is better than outright apostasy. He certainly wouldn't be the last leader in the covenant community to believe that. But still, this is breathtakingly incompetent leadership. And the text is brutally honest about that. And it leads exactly where you would expect it to lead. It led to sexual immorality and indecent behavior. That's what the last part of verse 6 is saying. The Hebrew word used there means sex play. And that's not my opinion. We have apostolic commentary on this verse. In 1 Corinthians 10, 7-8, Paul quotes verse 6 here and then tells us what it means. He says, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. So here's a principle, friends. Bad theology and bad worship lead inevitably to bad behavior. As we believe, so we eventually behave. Corrupted worship leads to corrupted behavior as sure as the day is long. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here for a second. There is so much that we could talk about here. We could talk about leadership failure and the honesty of the Bible in dealing with leadership failure. And we could talk about prayer again. What does it even mean that God relented after receiving Moses' prayer? I mean, that raises a bunch of questions. But because our time is limited today, and given the length of this chapter, I want to zoom in on what you just said there about how bad worship eventually leads to bad behavior. That feels very timely to me. Can you unpack that for us a bit? Yeah, sure. The, The Bible teaches again and again that people become what they worship. The Old Testament prophets will say that on multiple occasions. If you worship these pagan idols, they'll lead you into a life of darkness, deception, and futility, right? Because we become what we behold. The the heart follows the head. How, How you lean your head, how you turn your head is where your heart will follow course, it's the same principle in driving. We always uh, tell the kids who are learning to drive, where you look is where you will steer. So keep your eyes on the road, two or three car lengths in front of you. So bad worship always leads to bad behavior. But conversely, good worship leads to good behavior. We see that in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where Paul says that we all with unveiled faces are being transformed as we behold the image of Jesus Christ. So Again, we become what we behold for good or ill. And so again, we've been saying it again and again and again over the last couple of weeks. Worship really matters. Yeah, that is definitely becoming clear to us. Let's jump back in now to the text at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, 
and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Well, these are some of the scariest words in all the Bible. It sends chills down our spines to hear God refer to the people of Israel as your people. There is an implied disassociation in those words that is shocking. We, we try to hide from this reality, but it comes back to us on page after page of the Bible. Sin separates us from God. It did in the garden, and it is doing it again right here. God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. So when we give ourselves to evil, we offend the eyes of God. You see, God doesn't move. God is unchanging, but God does have a settled antagonism towards sin. So when we take sin to ourselves, it is like swallowing a bag of iron filings. Immediately, there is a reverse magnetism that drives us out of the presence of Almighty God. That is precisely what is happening here. The people have indulged in idolatry and immorality. They have swallowed a bag of sewer. And immediately, they are driven out of the presence of God. They are your people now, Moses and my wrath stretches out toward them. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Here we see Moses as the Old Testament mediator par excellence. This is what a mediator does. This is what it means to stand in the gap. And this is what it means to anticipate Jesus as the prophet like Moses, as Moses himself tells the people to do in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses' prayer is without a doubt the high water mark of Old Testament prophetic and priestly ministry. You will have to wait for the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and Luke to find a better example of prayer to follow. And, and following that does not mean ignoring this. The two go hand in hand and should stand side by side in your mental prayer book. In this prayer, Moses appeals to God on the basis of his own word and promises. Lord, you already claimed these people as my people. You already identified with them by your word and action. Lord, your own glory is now caught up with the progress and prosperity of these people. Lord, for the sake of your word and your name, do not utterly consume your people. That's a good prayer right there. And remarkably, God relents. And 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 we struggle a bit with that. It, it was even worse when we were reading the old King James Version. The King James rendered verse 14, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. What does it mean for God to repent? Or even as the ESV has it, which I think is better, 
what does it mean for God to relent? How can a sovereign, omniscient God change his mind? What does that even mean? R. Alan Cole is helpful here. He refers to this as another anthropomorphism, more properly, an anthropopathism, by which God's activity is explained by analogy in strictly human terms. The meaning is not that God changed his mind, still less that he regretted something that he had intended to do. It means, in biblical language, that he now embarked on a different course of action from that already suggested as a possibility, owing to some new factor, which is usually mentioned in the context closed quote. Anthropomorphism means to describe God's behavior in human terms. Anthropopathism means to describe God's emotions or feelings in human terms. It, it is metaphorical language, and it is the best we can do when speaking about God. But when doing so, we must simply admit the limitations. The Bible is saying that it is like God relented. It is as though he were about to do this and then did that. But we know, of course, it isn't exactly like that. In fact, we know that because God is God and because he knows all things, he is able to speak and act in ways that we cannot fully understand. What is clear is that God wanted Moses to begin functioning in this role as mediator. Because this is what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests stand between God and people. They speak to God on behalf of people, and they speak to people on behalf of God. The word priest means bridge. It means go-between. It means gap-stander. And that is precisely what God has called Moses to, and to a lesser extent, what God has called all of his people to do. So this is Moses doing what God created and intended him to do, and it foreshadows what God sent and commissioned Jesus Christ to do on behalf of all his people. Praise the Lord. Thus, the disaster is averted. But that is not to say that the people have avoided correction and chastisement. Far from it. We see that part of the story beginning to unfold in verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. By the way, let's just pause here and notice that Joshua was a much better waiter than the people of Israel in general. He too lost sight of Moses in 24:18 and he too has been sitting here staring at dark clouds for 40 days but he has not lost faith. He is where Moses left him and sometimes that is all it takes to be commended in the walk of faith. Verse 18. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. 
You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. Well, of course, that is the most ridiculous excuse in all the Bible, right up there with Adam's excuse in Genesis chapter 3. This woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate of it. Just another man afraid of the wrong things and making terribly transparent excuses. The Bible is full of such people, and of course, you and I, apart from the grace of God, are such people. The story continues in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. As we've mentioned before, prior to this point, the firstborn sons of all families and tribes appear to have functioned as the cult priesthood. Again, I use that term in the technical sense. But as of this moment, and because of this demonstration of loyalty, from now on, the Levites exclusively functioned as the clergy tribe in Israel. Now, because this incident is so arresting to the modern reader, we need to just say a few things by way of clarification. First of all, we should understand that these instructions came from God, not Moses. You can see that in verse 27. Secondly, the charge was not to kill all people indiscriminately. It was clearly only directed at those persisting in acts of idolatry. Thirdly, we should, of course, note that as we cross over from Old Testament to New Testament, execution becomes excommunication. The principle, then, is that anyone who persists in idolatry is to be excommunicated from the visible church. And then lastly, we should notice that this principle of exclusive loyalty to the God of the covenant, even over against intimate family ties, is also restated in the New Testament by none other than Christ himself. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If your love for me, Jesus says, does not so far outstrip your love and loyalty even to your closest relatives that it looks like hatred in comparison, then you cannot be my disciple. That is precisely the sort of love and loyalty that is commended in this text. Old Testament and New. You cannot be a priest unto the Lord unless you demonstrate it. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, 
Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. In these verses, we see that after Moses reimposed a sense of order on the people, he went back up the mountain to meet with God and to attempt to secure from God total forgiveness. And scholars disagree with one another here as to precisely how successful he was. What is clear is that God held back the punishment that properly corresponded to this fantastic apostasy. No one could have accused God of injustice if he had obliterated the people in the desert and restarted the covenant project with the house and line of Moses. That would not have been inappropriate. But he did not do that. So in that sense, Moses was successful. But the people do not get off scot-free, as we see in the next verse. Verse 35 says, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Now, we don't know, actually, how many people died in this plague. We, we don't know if any people died in this plague. We assume so. The, the, the plague Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 10, by the way, is actually the plague recorded in Numbers 25, the one wherein Phinehas, acting very much like the Levites here in Exodus 32, pierced a man and a woman through with a spear who were engaging in sexual immorality. That incident with the Baal of Peor is the mirror of this incident here with the golden calf. And Paul refers to the two incidents simultaneously. His point in 1 Corinthians is that bad worship leads to bad behavior, as we've seen time and time and time again throughout our history, with even 23,000 once falling in a single day. But that day was not this day. We, we don't know how many died here. What we know is that this plague functioned as a sort of warning. It was a shot across the bow. Nahum Sarnas is here. Israel receives a suspended sentence. The people is on probation. Closed quote. It may be that we are to connect verse 35 with verse 20, when Moses made the people drink the water mixed with the ashes of the golden calf. That has the look of a water ordeal. We think, for example, of the water ordeal associated with the woman suspected of adultery. The text seems to be saying that those God deemed most responsible for the episode of idolatry drank the water and died. Those less responsible did not. As we will see in future incidences, the ringleaders are executed and the people are severely warned. The Lord is holy and merciful. Thanks be to God. Well, amen. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 